Hello and welcome to episode 5 of the Rehumanize podcast. Here with Teresa Bakovanak, the president of Pro Life San Francisco. Uh, Teresa, introduce yourself. Hey, everybody. My name is Teresa. I am a San Francisco local. I am the founder and executive director of Pro Life San Francisco. We are a millennial led grassroots activist organization operating in arguably the most pro choice culture on the planet. Uh, I identify as a liberal, I'm a registered Democrat. Uh, I am an atheist, uh, I am a vegan, and I'm involved in the animal rights movement, and I want to build a culture of life in America. Great. What is the core mission of Pro-Life San Francisco? Our core mission is to educate the community on the issue of abortion, to connect pregnant people with resources, and to resist the influence of the abortion industry um, through nonviolent direct action. Now, I know that you are also an advisory board member of Rehumanize International, which runs this podcast. So I know that you personally embrace the consistent life ethic, which, if our listeners don't know by now, means that you oppose aggressive violence against human beings, regardless of development or any circumstance. Um, But Pro-Life San Francisco is a single issue organization, right? We are. Can you explain why you and the other founders made that decision to just focus on abortion? We decided to focus on just abortion um, in order to unite our state. We live in, like I mentioned, a very pro-choice culture and in a lot of ways, the place that actually gives power to the abortion industry and the abortion lobby. And in order to really address this, we need the support of our base. And I think that we, any who is involved in the pro-life movement or even is just um, observing it from the outside can see that the general um, attitude of the pro-life movement isn't necessarily of a consistent life yeah. ethic, that there's a very strong lean um, to, uh, to the right politically. And that's, um, that's, those individuals are still an advantage to us in terms of being able to influence um, our culture ultimately. It, it's really crucial, of course, that we're inclusive of people who hold the consistent life ethic because it's much closer to the democratic ideals generally held by the most of the population. Um, but we want to be able to give a place for those who both support and who are both and skeptical of the consistent life ethics so that we can come together on this issue in a very crucial place um, to try to actually reach them on abortion. Yeah, absolutely. I think that for me, when I tell people that I support the consistent life ethic and I work for an organization that promotes it, they assume that that means I think there's something wrong with single issue advocacy. Um, so I appreciate you coming on the podcast to sort of dispel that a little bit, because I think that there there's a hundred different reasons why someone should just focus on abortion or the death penalty or war. Um, and I think that for some people, they're afraid of 
you know, getting accused of being hypocrites if they only talk about abortion um, and say, don't focus on immigration or climate change or things like that. Um, And I think that having people, having, you know, pro-life liberals and leftists is important saying, you know, I believe in these different things, but right now let's talk about, you know, the number one killer of human beings in my neighborhood um, can be really important. So I'm excited that you are here and that the work that pro-life San Francisco does is very from the outside. I can see productive in that space, partially because it is so singularly focused. Um, So I wanted to ask you, you. what do you think is the hardest part of doing anti-abortion work in such a progressive area? The hardest part is the isolation of just having a weird point of view and not that it's weird, but it's uncommon to be, um, to have very liberal ideals and to um, to not hold biblical, moral, sexual values, and yet take an open stance against legal abortion. I think there's a lot of liberals that have concerns about abortion. There's a lot of left-leaning people that would express, um, you know, difficulty dealing with late-term abortion in terms of their own personal philosophy. Um, I got kind of lost. What was I saying? Oh, no, you're fine. Yeah, uh, you can start over at any point if you want. But uh, just the question is, what's the hardest part of doing anti-abortion? Oh, yeah. Um, But despite the fact that there are so many people that hold that point of view, there's very few that are willing to step out there and say, actually, I think that this should be illegal. And that really kind of puts me in a in a space that can be very isolating Mm -hmm. because most of the people that agree with me that abortion should be illegal also think that I need to be saved from Mm -hmm. my atheism or um, that I need to be brought to, you know, the conservative um, political viewpoint um, for whatever reason. And it can be, it can be a very lonely place. Mm -hmm. Um, But I know that that loneliness is necessary that it always takes that first person to be the one that's not afraid to be isolated or to be marginalized. And I look around my community and I don't see anybody else willing to do it. So for the time being, that is my role, but that's by far the hardest thing to, to deal with. Do you feel often that you sort of get that on both sides? Like you're a fish out of water in both liberal and conservative spaces. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think if I was able to find community in either space, um, then yeah, it would be, it would feel very different. But right now I'm trying to build a new community based Mm -hmm. on a new ideal. And that means that I do have to be the first one. And the hope is that it will inspire others like me to also be just um, as against abortion in terms of the law as I am. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's really important when I see um, a lot of, and it's not all, but it is a lot of sort of the new age pro-life liberal or consistent life ethic groups um, and just individuals that I see, especially online who sort of agree with me on everything, but aren't willing to pin it down and, talk about policy yeah um there's i think i see a lot of and i imagine that it's more so like that in san francisco where i don't like abortion but i don't know if it should be banned and i think that for the mainstream pro-life movement of which i think i'm a part of i think that you know i'm part of the sort of new age hippie consistent life ethic group but i also very strongly identify with 
the traditional pro-life movement. Um, Same. They're a good organization and people get <laughs> mad at me when I say that. Um, but, you know, I love these conservative groups, even though I disagree with half of the stuff they do. Yeah, we're um, like totally expected to toe the other side, too. It's exactly. Like you're supposed yeah. to be like a totally hippie weirdo pro-lifer. Yeah. And that means that, yeah, you're yeah. supposed to have these other points of view and not be cool with like talking about Operation Rescue yeah. or like <laughs> yeah. any of that. <laughs> I think that a lot of pro-lifers don't want to go to the extreme, quote unquote, of saying that it should be illegal because they're they're coming from a good place and they believe that if we can just meet the needs of women and families, that that will eliminate the problem or at least reduce it to just like these rare circumstances. And, and I think that that, you know, it, it makes sense when you talk about it like that. But when we look at it practically, especially in a place like California, where we're talking about the absolute safest and best place to be pregnant in the country, yeah. you are going to have health care, you are going to be covered, we are going to find a way to get you assistance after the baby is born. Um, and yet we have one of the highest abortion rates in the world, yeah. and certainly in the nation. Uh, and we have a culture that completely supports an abortion mentality. So this idea that we are just going to meet the needs of women and that that is going to somehow confront the system that supports this massive and uh, pervasive oppression, we're really fooling ourselves. And we, we have to get real if we want to see real results in our nation. We have to look at places like California and say, this is the abortion capital of the U.S., the highest abortion rate in the country and and programs that are helping women and families are not eliminating the problem. Yeah. Which isn't to say that those programs aren't good. Thank you for yeah. clarifying. <laughs> we should eliminate yeah. them. I'm just kidding. Yeah. Therefore, eliminate welfare. <laughs> yeah. We should all be conservative libertarians. Yeah. Just kidding. As a socialist, I do think that people should yeah. be having these supportive um, policies in place. Um, but we really have to get real about the, the enemy that we are fighting, which is not pro-choice people. It is a system of oppression upheld by all of society. We all play our part in this. Every time we engage in, you know, thinking like, Oh, she's 17 and unmarried and has a kid or wow, she's having her fourth kid and she's not married or whatever, you know, we're contributing to that. And we are all a product of this, this pervasive mentality that shames pregnancy, especially if it's not like in the biblical mm -hmm. sense of morality. Yeah. yeah. No, absolutely. I also think that something that I sort of see a lot and you sort of touched on this, but this idea that if we just meet the needs of pregnant people, then abortion will no longer exist. And I want that to be true. I wish, yeah. I wish that were the case, but if we don't, at least start from a place where we recognize that the preborn are human beings, then we're never going to get there. Because even if, you know, I could have healthcare all the way through pregnancy and be completely fine and be set up for life. If that's not a human being, then who cares if they die? Exactly. And I think that part of what for me making it illegal um, is important about is sort of denying the ability to say that they are not a class of human beings that matter. Um, because even if the abortion rate was near zero, it still shouldn't be legal to kill an entire class of human beings. Um, and I also think that uh, we talk about in the rehumanized office sometimes this really interesting concept of the 
you know, just throw money at the problem and then hopefully no one will choose abortion. Um, when that's sort of advocating for this interesting kind of trickle down safety net, um, which, you know, trickle down human rights, yeah, trickle down human rights. It's just, if, if women can have healthcare and pregnant people can have healthcare, then they won't use that to then kill their child. Um, and I want that to be true, but as we see in places like California that, um, you know, I'm sure could use more, um, assistance to people in need, yeah, but there um, can always be more. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't eliminate abortion and you need to go to the root cause, which, you know, it's partially poverty. It's partially dehumanization, but it is partially the law. And it's the fact that even if, um, abortion wasn't something that people felt like they needed, if it's available, they're going to get it. Absolutely. Um, So I think that's important. A more lighter topic (laughs) now, so do you, you are a young woman in the movement. <laughs> and I want to ask what that is like for you in sort of a liberal area, um, being, you know, a liberal woman leading the fight to take away women's rights. Yeah, it's pretty <laughs> remarkable. I think people, especially in the San Francisco community, in the pro-choice community, I think that they really just don't know what to do with me. I and I look and sound and am too much like them. And for that reason, I think that they find it quite problematic that I'm existing within that community. Had I been a white Republican male, mm-hmm. um, I think that they would enjoy my presence in the city. I think that that would really help you know, them to build their narrative of these evil anti-choicers. And it's really hard when you look at my Facebook page, it's, you know, very clear that I am an LGBTQI ally, that I am active in terms of protecting immigrants in my community, that I, that I get out for other social, social justice movements happening in the Bay area, that I am very active in the animal rights community, which is, extremely politically relevant right now in San Francisco. There's a lot of legislation that's coming um, to city hall and in Berkeley and the Bay area in general that revolves around right to know legislation and um, right to rescue, which is totally relevant also to the pro-life cause. And I think it's going to, it's going to be interesting going forward um, to see how that plays out politically when I'm advocating for something that is so popular um, on one hand um, and then turning around and then advocating to those same legislators um, against abortion. I think that overall being a woman is a beneficial position for me in my community and in my, uh, where I live. That is my community. I doubled on that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think that sort of leads into my next question, um, which is, what sort of creative activism tactics have you found beneficial in your area and what inspires that? Cause I know that I've seen you work with direct action everywhere, which is a um, animal rights group that does some kind of crazy stuff. Um, and I see that spirit sort of trickling into the anti-abortion movement, <laughs> which I think is really exciting. <laughs> awesome. Well, I'm glad that that's what it looks like from yeah. the outside because that's well, I'm also how a crazy I'm vegan. So <laughs> I think so it's pick great. up on yeah. that. 
It is really exciting. Um, we hosted a conference at UC Berkeley last year, the Let There Be Life conference. We're hosting it again in 2019. Herb will be a speaker. Very excited. Uh, and it was pretty amazing that we were able to draw quite a crowd of animal rights activists. I mean, more than I'd ever seen openly at a pro-life event before. In terms of creative activism and what's beneficial, it's really hard to know, I think, yet what is ultimately going to be beneficial. Um, but what we're going for now are things that are attention getting, that will that we can put on social media and that can speak to not just, you know, the base of pro-lifers in our community, but also to the pro-choice community that stalks us <laughs> to show them like, hey, over and over, we are building a new narrative. This is a new path and their tactics to try to destroy the pro-life movement in the past are not going to work um, for us or for that community. And, um, you know, some of, the, some of the things that we've done is act actively go to some of the businesses that do business with Planned Parenthood and convince them to uh, abandon their accounts with them. Uh, we have done loud protests outside of events where um, Planned Parenthood or NARAL executives are speaking and just really doing very loud disruptions um, where they cannot ignore the fact that there are young um some liberal-leaning pro-lifers in the city of San Francisco actively opposing them. Um, and we've, we just try to show up at events and, and, and be seen. And I'll think of other th interesting things we did yeah. later, but I'm not thinking of it on <laughs> I think, Yeah, aside from the big things, you know, I see big signs outside of events and megaphones, which is, it's always fun. Um, I think my favorite thing that I saw you do recently, it might have been a couple of years ago, back when... Um, the Planned Parenthood selling baby parts story really broke, which was in San Francisco, really. That's, totally. Planned Parenthood, um, Northern California. Was, yeah. um, and we can talk a little bit about that case now, too, because I know you organize around that. But I remember you had these little pamphlets in your apartment that said, um, I forget what they said, but something like, learn more about Planned Parenthood. And you would just hand them to people going into a Planned Parenthood rally or some event. And I think that's so funny because if I saw, you know, a cute young woman handing me a pamphlet <laughs> saying, would you like to learn more about Planned Parenthood? And then I open it up and learn about, you know, all of their misdeeds. I just, I think that's so funny. Um, and not completely dishonest, but creative. <laughs> yeah, it was actually the literal contract between yeah. STEM Express and Planned Parenthood Marmonte, um, which is also in California, um, in the South Bay area. And, um, it outlined exactly how much money they were taking in exchange for usable body parts. And I highlighted liver, thymus, tissue, yeah. so they could see, like, this is what they're supporting. And we printed them on pink paper, of yes. course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I know that sort of the, that talk of Planned Parenthood's um, dealings in the baby body part industry Um has sort of fallen out of fashion. We don't talk about it anymore because the mainstream media yeah. doesn't, but I know that it still matters. It's very, it matters because it's happening, but um, also the case against David Daleiden, who was the investigative journalist who uncovered that scandal um, is still ongoing. Yes. So there are a few things to say about um, this case. Now this all circulates around David Daleiden and the center for medical progress. They released several undercover videos back in 2015, exposing um, Planned Parenthood uh, top executive 
abortion doctors talking about um, doing partial birth abortions, which are illegal, um, talking about haggling over the prices of baby body parts. Um, and there were several interviews with these middleman companies that are making millions off of buying the body parts off of abortion facilities and then selling them to scientific um, scientists for scientific research. Um, a lot of this research is just uh, Frankenstein stuff too. It has nothing to do with like curing diseases. It's just like, can we put a human brain in a mouse or something like just ridiculous things. And, um, and anyways, all of this, uh, video evidence that was released uh, was given to Congress. There were two congressional hearings based on the evidence and the evidence later revealed in the congressional reports. That led to an FBI investigation, which has been concluded. We are simply waiting for the results of that investigation. And we, it, it's very hard to believe that given that the evidence that we have mm -hmm. that they were weren't able to find evidence um, that they were trafficking baby body parts. So we are expecting hopefully that the FBI will hold them accountable and that there will be indictments. Mm -hmm. We don't know what that looks like. We don't know when that looks like, but we are waiting any day now. In the meantime, Planned Parenthood and the National Abortion Federation, they're continuing to pursue their lawsuit against him, basically claiming that because he released this video information and and um, went undercover at these conferences, regardless of the fact that he did what every other journalist in the state of California does every day, um, they are attempting to say that it has put some of these abortion doctors' lives in jeopardy um, because of the, the truth of what they do. It, it's really remarkable that... We're in a place where we can say, well, you know, you can choose to do this for a living and you can talk about it in public spaces, but should people find out about it, they would be horrified and your life would be potentially threatened that they somehow get protection from that. Yeah. that the horror of the reality of what they do um, in their that, own words, too. right? Yeah. In their own words. So th this protection that they're receiving is from corruption in California. They, this lawsuit was brought about, well, the investigation was originally brought about by Kamala Harris taken over by Javier Becerra. Um, and in terms of the criminal case and the civil case is being overseen by a judge who has a legal obligation to Planned Parenthood through a previous organization that he um, served on a board for. So the corruption is very deep and this is what David and his team is dealing with. And the end goal here is to hold Planned Parenthood accountable to vindicate David and Sandra Merritt and to ensure that the rest of these videos are released to the public so that we can take them to the authorities and ensure justice is served. So what do you think that the future of the pro-life movement looks like? Well, that is a complicated question because we don't know. I can tell you what I want it to look like. I want it to look like the pro-choice movement as much as possible um, without being actually pro-choice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, we need to look like them and sound like them and be like them in many ways and reflect them through the people that we're able to bring into the movement. I'm not saying people in the already in the movement need to change. I They can 
be exactly who they are, but we want to find a way to bring in more people that look like me, that look like San Francisco, that seem pro-choice so that we can actually demonstrate sameness and find a way to, to bring people in and break through their confirmation barrier, confirmation bias barrier. How do you think that other groups um, like pro-life San Francisco could work to build bridges with people who um, aren't the traditional, you know, white conservative Christian man, um, but who might be leaning towards pro-life or pro-life curious. Um, how can we sort of break those stereotypes to get through to them, to have the conversation? That's a great question. And, you know, the most immediate things are going to be the way you look like, it, it sounds shallow, yeah. but that's the reality of the situation. Like someone has already made a judgment about you based on how you look. And when you look at like, look at a group of pro-lifers, look at a group of pro-choicers, let's say none of them are holding any kind of propaganda whatsoever, but you know, which group is which, yeah. you know, already by looking at them, you've already drawn so many conclusions about each group and each individual in that group. They may not be true at all, but we've already subconsciously drawn them. And that is our biggest barrier. So, I mean, if we really want to make an impact on the conversations that we're having, we have to look cool. And if you think looking <laughs> cool and bringing sexy back to the pro-life movement is not important to your personal advocacy, I encourage you to think again, whoever you are, that matters. And if you need help, I am here for you. You hit me up anytime. I'm giving the pro-life movement the makeover. <laughs> denim jackets for everyone in the movement <laughs> but let's say you are psychologically opposed to that and you just think nope this is who i am i am not interested in changing any part of myself in this way but maybe there's some other way that i can help i would just try to be as explicit as possible that you're open to people who are atheist who are bisexual like you have to say those words yeah. otherwise people won't believe you you can't just mm -hmm. you have to use the words and phrases that will be inclusive and welcoming and mean something comfortable to the person that you're talking to so get used yeah. to using language like that yeah yeah no identify as a social justice warrior say that yes. you know abortion is an axis of oppression and it it is it's sort of like use the rhetoric that's going to be convincing yeah but i believe it. it it is it is it is a matter of very powerful people big money in politics keeping oppression of a group of people legal um and i think that we sort of have not gotten used to speaking that way as a movement but i've seen that be the most effective way to reach out to people especially young people who you know are all about social justice and think they support human rights, but absolutely don't fully understand what abortion is yet. That's why the consistent life ethic in and of itself is so powerful because it speaks to the values that young people already hold. Yeah. They already hold all those other values that aren't traditional to the pro-life movement, but are, you know, obviously a part of the consistent life ethic. And when you start talking about oppression and violence against human beings, that is a pervasive ideology for young people. And it is the perfect way to introduce to them the idea of being anti-abortion. Mm -hmm. um, so I think one final question. I think a lot of people in the mainstream pro-life movement feel a lot of momentum building right now, especially on a federal level. I think that, um, you know, I, 
say what you want about Trump, but we have two conservative justices on the court that weren't there before. And I think that a lot of people and a lot of people in the pro-choice community are thinking that Roe is going to fall soon. Um, I'm not so confident about that. I am not willing to hedge my bets. I think that I need a couple more justices before I can be confident to send a case to them. But I think that it's, it's in our lifetime and I don't think it's too far off that we'll see the end of Roe v. Wade. Um, as you know, that does not mean the end of legal abortion. Nowhere close to it. Um, as someone who will be living in California, probably going to be a very pro-abortion state if Roe, if and when Roe falls, how do you think that the dialogue and the activism will have to change in a post-Roe world? I think that it is such a timely question right now. And ultimately, I think whether or not we overturn Roe eventually, it doesn't change the fact that the question of whether or not Roe will be overturned is shaping the movement um, on both the pro-life and the pro-choice side right now. Um, the legal experts that I've heard from on the pro-choice side seem pretty confident that Roe will be affirmed, but probably rolled back a bit. Yeah, And, and it has been. It has been, Frequently right. And, and Planned Parenthood versus Casey most uh, notably. And I think that it's interesting to think about what that might look like because if federal law actually rolls back and um, prevents, um, you know, later term abortions or, or certain types of abortions, that could be even more restrictive for a place yeah. like California uh, rather than just overturning Roe, which would not do anything. Um, so I, I think it's it's a really interesting question, um, and and we don't know how it's going to go. But the other part of your question, which is how should we change? How should we be prepared for that? Because clearly overturning Roe would be, and the talk of overturning Roe is fueled by right-leaning politicians yeah. and Republican politics and this very kind of national, like middle America will not be ignored kind of um, a narrative, which is a powerful narrative, but in, in pro-choice places where if Roe was to be overturned, yeah. The opposite is just as powerful. The opposite is just as powerful. And so I I believe that the tactics that I've already sought to employ, the, the reason that I was inspired to found Pro-Life San Francisco was because Trump was running for president and I foresaw that we would need yeah. a different voice in a place that really, really matters to the pro-choice side. And so that was my vision from the very beginning. And so for me, this is still the path that we have to take, that we have to break down these walls of confirmation bias. We have to reach these very, very liberal progressive communities. Otherwise, being anti-abortion will never be seen as a progressive ideal. And if it isn't, then we won't ever get there. Yeah. If it's always seen as something that we have to get back to, that we have to regress to, um, then that's not that's not how culture works. Young people will never drive the idea of turning back time. It has to be new, and it's never going to be new unless it's coming from a progressive voice. Um, I think one of the, maybe to go with the last question, one of the really important things that 
Uh, I think the entire movement should be focused on right now is our areas of commonality with most pro-choice people in the most extreme and egregious cases of um, abortion, especially late term um, issues of infanticide. Um, and partial birth abortion. Now, I think a lot of people say, well, you know, opposing those things is just like pro-choice Bill Clinton, you know, that's Mm -hmm. not getting any kind of progress. But truly, any Democrat that took any of those positions at this point would be extremely progressive and super alienated from the base and and really be taking a new path. And that's how it needs to be seen. Which is wild. (laughs) It is. It is crazy. But it's kind of like you have to hit rock bottom to start going back. And we have to, going back is forward in a way on this topic. And I think with everything that's happened in Alabama and Georgia um, and and all these sweeping conservative policies, uh, we're seeing that the conversation about abortion is really focused on these very um, hard cases like rape that are even controversial within pro-life circles. And, um, And I think that that is ultimately going to be detrimental to us in places like California, where we have a lot of people that have reservations about late-term abortion and infanticide and and yet they have literally no representation on that more moderate quote-unquote point of view Um, and the only positions that were offered in this nation from our politicians is you know an all-out ban on all abortions without any kind of like cultural march towards like understanding why or abortion up until birth and maybe after because we don't want to you know criminalize abortion doctors or and taxpayer funded and taxpayer funded precisely so i think that ultimately you know building a culture of life is incremental and maybe that's maybe that's controversial to say but Mm -hmm. building a culture of life starts from the beginning and we have to start where we have the most support. And if we can get the entire pro-life movement and America to look at what's happening in places like San Francisco with UCSF, um, that Trump just canceled a, a one contract, um, that they had with fetal tissue research that required two pristine fetuses between the ages of 18 and 24 weeks per month for one research project that would humanize mice um, for medical research. And the only ways they could have performed those abortions would be through a live dismemberment or a medical induction because digoxin would ruin quote unquote, the tissue for medical research. And an induction is what? Um, It would be a, a birth. Yeah. A birth. So, and we know that the best way to transfer tissue is to do it while still alive. So, there's definitely incentives to do all kinds of really bad things. And actually, UCSF, the University of San Francisco, University of California, San Francisco, is leading the way on late-term abortion training for the world. They have the top-rated uh, abortion training program in the nation, the Ryan Residency, where they train OBGYNs um, across the the nation and all of the top Planned Parenthood doctors, they lead the way in technology, quote unquote, in terms of doing late term abortions. Um, And they have all, there is a, there are several doctors there that are an establishment that have been there for 
some 20 years or more um, that have been do that are just surrounded by yes men that are just completely in a bubble of people that think, you know, a, a fetus at 24 weeks is just tissue, nothing to be concerned about. And they're completely not tuned into what the rest of the, com how the rest of the community would feel about that. Should it be commonly understood? Um, and I think, I know from the pro-choice friends that I've talked to about this particular topic that they find this morally problematic. I think if we start in places like that, if we can get everyone to look at UCSF and the kinds of practices that they do and that they're training other universities and hospitals to do, then we will have a lot more people interested in taking um, a more incremental step in towards building a culture of life. Yeah. I also think that something that... I kept thinking about while you were speaking was that I haven't heard about this from anyone else. And I think that's partially because you happen to run a very specific organization that is focused on a very specific thing in a very specific area. Yes. And I think that that sort of thing, if we didn't have, you know, pro-life San Francisco, wouldn't be heard about. People wouldn't be talking about it because... Um, you know, the pro-choice community is not broadcasting that, obviously. Sure. Um, and I think that really speaks to how important it is to, of course, support the national groups. Like, you know, we love the big groups. We love Rehumanize International. Yes. Um, but to, to not stop there, to also look in our own backyards and see on a local level what's happening. Because I know I live in Pittsburgh um, and, you know, we have a late-term abortion clinic. Um, and I would table on my campus when I went to the University of Pittsburgh. And people would be shocked to learn that not only was abortion legal after eight weeks, but that it happens a couple blocks away. Um, and I think that that sort of thing can bring a lot of urgency to the issue when people realize just how close it is and just how prevalent it is and just how common it is. Um, so I think that groups like yours are really important to have a sustainable movement. Because I think if it's just, you know, big wigs in Washington, D.C. and eggheads at universities um, who are great and we need, we're not going to be able to reach people um, and reach the people in the way that they need to be reached. I couldn't agree more. I, it has to be local. And I, I want to inspire other major um, cities to have a similar grassroots uprising of young people um, leading the movement against abortion. It's absolutely crucial. Unless people of these left-leaning communities who are harboring these pro-life points of view but don't see anyone representing them, see people representing them, yeah. then we will continue to lose. We're just going to keep fighting the war around... We're going to fight the civil war around Atlanta instead of fighting it in Atlanta and winning. Yeah. So, yeah, we all have to take up our nonviolent arms and get to work. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, thank you for coming on, Teresa. My pleasure. Thank Lovely. you for having me, Herb. I love Rehumanize, and I, I'm so excited to be a, a part of the organization. And I am excited for your conference. When is that? Can you plug the dates? Yes, it is going to be September 7th, 2019, at the University of California, Berkeley, the home of the free speech movement. We are looking to organize and motivate um, our state for action um, within their own communities and, of course, any other communities around the country that want to learn about this type of grassroots activism to apply it in their own local area. Great. I can't wait.
Thanks for tuning in to episode five of the Rehumanize podcast. To learn more, check out rehumanizeintl.org or follow us on social media at rehumanizeintl.